the problems in Corinth is uh, only just beginning. Uh, having dealt at length with pride and division in chapters 1 to 4 in the Corinthians' boastful response to incest in chapter 5, Paul moves on to deal with two more issues in this chapter, suing one another and visiting prostitutes at the church in Corinth. It seems that he's working through the things he's heard about, probably uh, through an oral report from Chloe's household. He referenced that in chapter 1, verse 11, before turning to address the things the Corinthians have asked him in their letter, and that's chapter 7 uh, onwards. But there's an interesting connection between the lawsuits we read about here and the incestuous man in the previous chapter, and it's one that has a lot to teach uh, you know, our, our, our age of tolerance. In both cases... Uh, the Corinthians have made an absolute mess of things by surrendering their responsibility to judge, to make judgments. They failed to judge sin within the church by not expelling the so-called brother of 5 verses 11 through 13. And here we learn they failed to take responsibility for judging disputes within the church, choosing instead to involve the law courts from the outside. That's We're going to get into that in 6, 1 through 8. People uh, often command... Uh, Jesus is commanded in Matthew 7 not to judge. You hear that all the time. Doesn't the Bible say not to judge? Don't judge. Don't judge. Uh, as if it means that what Jesus meant when he said that is we're supposed to avoid moral discernment altogether and never do that. That isn't Jesus' point at all. In fact, later on in chapter 7, that same chapter, he'll tell us how we should, in fact, judge others. But he's talking about, when he says don't judge, he's talking about the superiority and pride that look down on other people as though uh, our sins are better than theirs or that we're better than them. And Paul makes it clear in this text, among others, that if we refuse to make judgments within the church, we can actually do great harm to each other. Uh, We're brought to the end of ourselves and into life and freedom by the Holy Spirit because God has purchased us at the price of His own Son. So that's what we're looking at this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, God, I thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the truth that holds us together and makes us one. Father, I praise you that our unity does not come from ourselves, but from you and the finished work of Christ and his blood that covers all of us under the same cross and righteousness. And so, God, would you be with us tonight as we open your word, as we go through it together. God, would you uh, give us your grace to understand, to receive your word, help me to speak clearly, to preach well, to make sense of this passage. And Lord, may we all receive your word with meekness as it is able to save our very souls. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul writes, When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, there are a number of reasons why litigation within the church is so or would be so destructive. The first is obvious to anyone who's been in a church when this has happened. Uh, the disunity and pain caused when one person takes another to court and then the other church members get drawn into taking sides, that's incalculable. That just can split a church, and if it doesn't, it can lead to suspicion and hostility for years, right? Poisoning the congregation when they pray together, when they sing together, when they take the Lord's Supper together, and so on. Paul has addressed the need for unity at some length already, so he doesn't really go into that here. The second reason is that such litigation implies that the judgments of unbelievers are more valuable than the judgments of the church, when in reality the opposite is true as it pertains 
to the church. Verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? The people of God, united with Christ, are going to judge the world. They're going to judge angels as they are in Christ, right? J.B. Lightfoot makes a comment here, very helpful. Just as the faithful shall reign with Christ as kings, 2 Timothy 2.12, Revelation 22.5, so they shall also sit with him as judges of the world. That's a mystery to us. But they have the knowledge of God, these believers, the mind of Christ, the presence of the Spirit. Surely, a matter like this, and we're not told what it is, the specific case he's talking about, but it probably involves a wealthier member throwing their legal weight around uh, at the expense of a poorer one, surely judging something like that is within the church's capability. Yet here they are, outsourcing judgment to people whose way of life is scorned in the church. But you would trust them to make judgments on or for the church. If you offend the wrong member whose heart is warped and sinful, as Paul tells Titus, you could get taken to court for it. You could get sued. Paul calls this shameful on the part of one who says he's a Christian and does that, right? Verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Paul cannot believe this is happening. The third reason litigation within the church is so destructive is the shame, the utter shame that comes about from having unbelievers seeing all the church's dirty laundry, right? Given how wise you all are, Paul is saying, or is about to say, with more than a hint of sarcasm, you would think that someone might be wise enough among you to sort all this out. Look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? Instead, you're airing all your squabbles in front of unbelievers. Look in verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Showing them just how divided and selfish they are in Corinth. The fourth reason is that suing each other shows that you care more about being vindicated in court. You care more about winning, about being right with the money and social reward which that brings than you do about your brothers and your sisters in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Surely, Paul is saying, if you were looking at this through the lens of the cross... You'd be, you'd rather be cheated than you would divide the church over something. You'd rather lose, right? Than divide Christ's church. Isn't it better to be defrauded in worldly terms than to have the whole church defeated in spiritual terms? You're so concerned not to lose out to a wrongdoer that you've become the wrongdoers yourselves. To be the kind of Christian, when you read a text like that, to be the, the, the kind of Christian the Bible describes as more radical than we're comfortable admitting. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Is there anything more countercultural today, to our culture today, than to say, you know what, it would be better for me to suffer wrong than to hurt everybody? The triumph of the self is everything. My voice has to be heard. My way has to be accounted for, right? That's the whole culture. It's a shame when that infects the church, Paul is saying, which leads to this kind of sinning why not rather suffer wrong why not rather be defrauded if that's better for the church right verse 8 but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers now 
it does need to be said here, given the scandals of the last few years nationwide in about every part of the church, it's worth highlighting one thing this passage definitely does not mean, is not saying. It does not mean that we should deal with legitimate criminal activity in-house without informing the police of illegal behavior. So the, the, the difference between civil and criminal law, the difference between uh, modern courts and then the status and the patronage-based system in the ancient world, that's very important here for our understanding. Paul would be horrified if we were to use this text um, as a pretext for cover-ups, for institutional silence or the protection of abusive leaders when serious, legitimate allegations have been made. That's not what this text is telling the church to do. He's saying that if I have a dispute with my Christian carpenter, for example, or something, if I have a dispute there, I should handle it within the church. Maybe even use you know, mediation or an equivalent process rather than suing him or her in the courts. We just We don't do that to each other. We just don't. He's not saying that a claim of sexual abuse should be hidden from the police and resolved by the elders or something instead. Absolutely not. That needs to go to the police. As we've seen with very tragic frequency, if we're dialed in on that sort of thing, that that sort of response leads to exactly the outcome, division, pain, shame on the church's reputation that Paul has written this section to avoid. The lawsuit scandal brings Paul to his third Major warning in the letter here. After the warnings against careless or destructive building in the church back in 3, 10 to 17 and tolerating incest in 5, 1 to 13. If we're reading attentively, there are several clues that this is coming. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Whenever, by the way, Paul says, do you not know in this letter, there's a correction coming. He uses it at least seven times. Chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. 15, 16, 19, 9, 24. It functions like an astonished, um, surely you know that, right? Similar things are true of the, the phrase, do not be deceived in this verse, which we also saw the last time Paul warned against eternal destruction in 318. The nature of sin, we're learning from Paul, is that it deceives us into thinking it's not that serious and we can just keep doing it. Paul pleads with the Corinthians not to allow deception to dilute the severity of what they're doing. Then there's his use of the word the unrighteous in verse 9, or wrongdoers. Wrongdoers is actually a great translation, a better translation of the the word adokoi, which is usually translated as unrighteous, usually Because it helps us see the connection between suffering wrong, back in verse 7, doing wrong in verse 8, and being a wrongdoer in verse 9. Paul wants us to connect the dots here. There are times when you have to choose between suffering wrong and doing wrong. When you're tempted to sue your brother or sister, for instance, here. And in those circumstances, you should avoid doing wrong, that, at all costs. Because wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's his point here. If if you persist in this, if you do this, if there's unrepentance in this, and you just keep doing it, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. People who do such things unrepentantly, with no awareness, no care, no concern, no conviction, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, they're not acting like believers. 
although the lawsuits serve as the kind of the trigger for Paul to write this, is not the only instance of wrongdoing that he has in mind with the folks in Corinth. He mentions ten different categories of unrighteousness which disqualify a person if they're unrepented of from the kingdom in verses 9 and 10. So let me go back and read 9 and then add 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So these are problems, what he's about to say in Corinth. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The sexually immoral, right? Those who have any form of sexual intercourse outside of a marriage between a husband and a wife. Idolaters, worshipers of any gods besides the Lord. Paul will come back to both of those, by the way, in this letter. Adulterers, married people who have sex with someone other than their spouse. Men who practice homosexuality. Those that participate in homosexual acts are in outright sin against God. There, there, there may be believers who struggle with same-sex attraction and know it's sinful to lust or to indulge in those actions, and they're seeking God constantly for help and for forgiveness and for grace. This text refers to those who practice the acts of homosexuality in the same way the other sins listed here are being practiced, without repentance, without admitting that they're actually sinful. Next, thieves. Right, That's pretty straightforward. The greedy. People whose hearts always want more and who use their power or their wealth to get it. Paul might have still, you know, Corinthian lawsuits in mind here. Drunkards, that's straightforward. Slanderers, those who lie about others. Swindlers, those who cheat others. People who live like this, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. We need a new identity. We need to be in Christ and covered by His grace in constant recognition, constant repentance of our sin. To be in Christ means we're no longer defined by our sins. So why would we continue in them? We're defined by Christ. There are three things worth noting about this catalog of wrongdoing. Right. The first is that it's not controversial. There's there's no no surprises here. There's nothing on the list. You're like I didn't know that was a sin. It's pretty straightforward. And it's one of several lists like this in Paul's writings. He tends to tailor those lists when he gives them according to the issues in the church he's writing to. This list covers sins that are prohibited. Numerous times in the rest of the Scripture that all believers should know are sinful. Most of them are included in some form in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 21 through 17. So it ought not to surprise the Corinthians or anyone who knows their Bible that unrepentant behavior like this prevents people from inheriting the kingdom. The second notable point is that Paul puts sins that we regard as very serious alongside sins that we might think of as pretty trivial. Paul lumps them all together, right? Christians rightly see adultery as a big deal, completely unacceptable, right? But we might be more inclined to accept greed or slander, right? Because those aren't as obvious, those aren't as as pronounced, and they're more common. Paul lumps them all together. But the third point here is beautiful. We find that in verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see what Paul does there. Many of them clearly 
are still committing some of these sins, which is why they need rebuked and reminded. That's, you need to repent of this. That's not who you are anymore. Paul speaks to them in light of their new identity. Like Jesus who told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. It's, 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 in the context, that's not a warning. That's a pronouncement of peace. You don't have to go back to that life. I've set you free from that. I've washed you from that. I've cleaned you of that. Don't go back there. Paul is saying, stop doing these things. That's not who you are anymore. That's who you used to be. You don't need to commit those sins. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Don't go back to who you were. You're new. Repent. Walk on in your new identity. Our struggle with sin should threaten our assurance when we persist in it without repentance. Defend it or justify it or have no desire to change. That's when we should be afraid when we read these warnings. In that dangerous state, what we need, we need to hear that as the law that we're not obeying and we need to repent. But when we're honest about our sin before the Father, and realize it's out of step with our new identity, and we repent and desire to walk in a way that is pleasing to Him, we do not need to be afraid of these warnings. They're not for us. That is evidence that we've been washed and sanctified and justified in verse 11. And that's when we need to hear the promise of the Gospel. Even when listing the most grievous sins he can think of, Paul cannot stop himself here from going back to the grace of God and the transforming work of Jesus. This list, he reminds them, he reminds us, is exactly what you were like before Jesus changed your life. So he's saying to them, let's not pretend, right? Let's, let's, let's not pretend that you were textbook examples of virtue before you came to Christ. Paul says you were immoral, idolatrous, adulterous, greedy, slandering, drunks. But you were washed clean, which is probably a reference to our baptism. You were made holy. You were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. God changed everything about you because of His unmerited, transforming favor in Christ. For that reason, they and we have both the motivation, the invitation to repent of sinful behavior and inherit the kingdom. Their motivation is that you need to be who you are to bring your lifestyle in line with the reality of who you are in Christ, he said. You want to inherit the kingdom. You want to live out what God has done in your life. And the power for that comes from the gifts that God has already given to you. Baptism, justification, sanctification, and the indwelling presence of the Spirit. The person of the Spirit. By those means, God has already changed you once. Even as you continue to struggle against sin as you wait for the renewal of all things. If you repent of your sins, no matter how serious they are, God will forgive you and He'll do it again and again and you will inherit the kingdom that He has prepared for you. 1 John 1, 19, or 1, 9, sorry, among other texts. The list in verses 9 through 11 now bridges the two halves of 1 Corinthians 6. It brings together examples of sexual sin, sexual immorality, adultery, homosexual sex, which will be the focus of verses 12 through 20, and the financial and legal ones, which were the focus of verses 1 through 8. Theft, greed, slander, swindling. So Paul's first challenge to the Corinthian sexual behavior is coming now. You used to be like this yourself. 
we've seen that. We've read that. But you were washed and sanctified and justified in verse 11. That's come before we ever find out why he's telling them that. Right? We understand in the first half of the text that there's an issue with litigation and lawsuits and money and greed and these things. But why is he talking to them about sexual behavior? When we eventually find out, we, we ought to be astonished. Not only that it's being done and accepted by those who profess to be Christians, but it's also something that Paul feels the need to argue with them about. The Corinthian Christians are visiting prostitutes. No shame. Nobody even saying it's sinful. Now, they have their reasons for it. Look in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. That's a quote of the Corinthians that are visiting prostitutes. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So one of the reasons they're doing this is their warped idea of Christian freedom. That's the first clear example in the letter of a Corinthian slogan, of things that these people say to justify their actions, these little sayings they have. A simple line that they use, which has been passed on to Paul in a letter from Chloe's household, this is what our brothers and sisters here are saying if we talk to them about their sin in the matter of visiting prostitutes. They say, all things are lawful for me. Corinthian men were using this line as a justification to have sex with whomever they wanted. Doesn't that sound familiar? Their 21st century successors are still using the same arguments today. And I'm a pastor, so I get to hear um, all kinds of justifications for certain behavior, right? And you probably do too. But we love each other. We really love each other. Paul didn't have a problem with extramarital sex. Paul had a problem with prostitution. But my wife and I are incompatible, so I had to step out on her. We're planning on getting married. Right? We want to get married. Paul has a very sharp response to all things are lawful, but they're not all helpful. All things are lawful, but why would you be a slave to fleshly desires ever again? One point of Christian freedom is that you're free from sin. You no longer need to be a slave to it. Another argument they have in Corinth, which in many ways has even more parallels with today, comes from their horribly cheap view of what sex actually is. Look in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's another thing they're saying to justify their sexual actions. And God will destroy both one and the other, Paul says. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's how they're also excusing this sin. Hey, when you're hungry, you eat. And then you don't feel hungry anymore. It's a natural craving and you satisfy it in a natural way. Some Corinthian men are arguing that sex is just the same. Hey, it's natural, Paul. It's a natural way of satisfying a physical need. You're hungry, so you eat. You want sex, so you visit a prostitute. Think of the devaluing of the image of God in women in that argument. That, that are actually saying something along the lines of, she's no more than food for a hungry man or a toilet that you would relieve yourself in. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, there are tons of problems with that. The rest of the chapter, that, that's where we see Paul explaining the three, at least three very large problems with that and in a remarkably 
theological way, a, a Trinitarian way. He'll bring in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here to say, what are you doing? Right? Because all these things have to do with the image of God in man and that Christ has bought us and we belong to Him, including our bodies. And He is holy. The first problem with acting like that, thinking like that, is in verse 15, that we're members of Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And we're destined for the same resurrection that Jesus experienced in His body in verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. And we're united with Him in spirit in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. At the same time, having sex with a person is an act of one flesh union with them. And it has always been that ever since Eden. That's why Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 in verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's talking about the physical union of marriage. All the way back in Genesis. So you can't just take sex and define it as you want. That's what it is as God created it. So is it right for me to take a body that's united with Christ and unite it with a prostitute? Of course not, in verse 15. The second problem relates to the Holy Spirit. God has given you His Spirit and He dwells in you, which makes your body a temple. The very dwelling place of God in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Your body, in that sense, is now sacred space unto the Lord. And while there are all sorts of sins which take place outside the body, and as such they don't defile this sacred temple in the same way, sexual sin takes place inside the body. It takes place within the temple courts, if you will. And therefore, it's a sin against your own body. In verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The Corinthians have been working very hard to cheapen sex. Turn it into a bodily function, like eating or going to the bathroom. Paul unmarried himself, as he'll tell us in chapter 7, insists sex is a sacred, one flesh forming mystery and should therefore be treated with reverence. It's one of the main things Satan goes after to destroy a society, to destroy, to destroy a culture of sexuality. Make it casual. Make it a matter of pride, of use. It, it's, it's just natural. No, it's not. It is in its proper context. But when we take it out of that, we, we destroy ourselves. That, that, notice that that's a part of the main issue here is that, look, you're destroying your own self. What are you doing? Imagine what you're doing to the prostitute who has to deal with this again and again and again and again. Imagine how it's affecting her. You say, well, people make those choices on their own. No, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes not. I mean, all the human trafficking going on today with little children and grown adults and beloved, the, the people are being destroyed. Destroyed by being used sexually. 
So it's, it's, it's not just the one committing the sin willfully, it's the one suffering from it, or that is also a part of it. Consensual or not, it's killing people, destroying them. God would rescue us from this. He's not a prude. He created it. He created the human body to do what it does and feel what it feels. So he's not a prude. That's not why God is against extramarital sex and using it like you would use, hey, I'm hungry, so I eat. You're going to destroy yourself. So, sin is sin in a sense. Yes, sin is sin. But sexual sin is particularly and tragically damaging to a person in a tragically unique way. So, beloved, flee from it. He says, get away from it. He doesn't say that about too many things. That, he says, flee from it. Shun it. Pray that God would kill it in us. Lord, help us. Right. So, Paul's... Trinitarian case now, you have the Son, you have the Spirit. For sexual purity concludes with God the Father. Let's read 19 and 20 now together. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The great lie at the heart of sexual immorality and ultimately of any form of sin is the idea that, well, I'm my own. And if I am mine, then I get to decide what to do. I get to decide how to spend my time, who to sleep with, what I can do with my body, what I can do with my money, what I can say with my mouth, right? It's tragically destructive. But I am not mine. I actually don't belong to me. I was bought by God for the unthinkably great price of His own Son. So, Paul says, Even my sex life does not belong to me. It belongs to Him. And He has made His will for me very clear in this matter. Flee from sexual immorality in verse 18. In um, Andrew Wilson's commentary on 1 Corinthians, he wrote about how a pastor named Alan Noble commented that churches will only thrive in the modern world to the extent that they embrace the first line of the Heidelberg Catechism. Now this is a a summary of Christian teaching that, that some churches confess, Baptist churches, I believe, but it was originally written in Germany in the 1560s. But it, it is a great way to start thinking through the faith, right? It, it, the, the answer, the, it begins, the whole catechism, by asking, um, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer begins, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's point here. And it is the foundation for a life of sexual purity and Christian fidelity. I'm not mine. You are not yours. Praise God for this. Because we make a mess when we think we belong to ourselves. And if that was true, all we'd ever have is a mess. And all we ever have is condemnation. But we've been washed. Maybe you've sinned sexually in your life. You've been washed. Before God, you are clean and whole and beautiful. Don't, to the degree that you have the grace to do so, don't go back. The past is in the past. It's under the blood. We don't make light of it, but we certainly don't need to let it condemn us. It's been forgiven. It's been forgiven. It's been forgiven. We've been sanctified as God's own, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, That's verse 11. This is the glorious end of self. 
to which Jesus has brought each one of us. And that's where we want to be. Let us live as though we're the property of another by pure grace. The self has been lost by us, yes, but it's been found in Christ. Purchased by His perfect blood. We are much safer there. We're much better off when we're listening to and obeying His Word. We're much better off when we let Him tell us what to do with our body. Nobody's going to tell me what to do with my body. Then it's going to get destroyed. Let the One who made you and fashioned you tell you what to do with what He's made. And you will be all the safer for it. He made us. He loves us. He's redeemed us. He no longer holds these things against us. We are most safe and we're most free as slaves of Christ bought at a price. We need to lose ourselves. We need to come to the end of ourselves in every regard. With our bodies, with our money, with our time, all these things. With our words. We make a mess of things when we think we own these things. But Christ makes us whole. And Christ makes us free at the end of ourselves.